0: Our confession this evening comes from the Belgian Confession, Article 6. The Belgic Confession, Article 6. It is on page 820 of the Gray Psalter Hymnal. And it's printed there for you. Um, and you can keep it open in front of you if you desire, Uh, but it'll also be up on the screen because I didn't want you guys to have to try and say all of these uh, strange names of things, so we have kind of a responsive reading uh, prepared. But as we prepare now to meditate on what it is that we believe, uh, let's come before God in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us about who you are and about who we are as your people. And Lord, we thank you that you have inspired people throughout history through your Holy Spirit to, um, to summarize the teachings of scripture in these confessional writings that teach us what it is that we believe. And Lord, we pray now that as we meditate on this sixth article of the Belgian Confession, that you would bless us through the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us, that you would transform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, whose name we confess before you. Amen. So, Belgian Confession, Article 6. We say with one heart and one mouth, We distinguish between these holy books and the apocryphal ones, which are the third and fourth book of Edris, the books of Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Jesus Sirach, Baruch, what was added to the story of Esther, the song of the three children in the furnace, the story of Susanna, the story of Bel and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and the two books of Maccabees. The Church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, but they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm from their testimony any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, this article of the Belgian Confession might seem hardly worth a passing glance to our eyes. It's a simple article which defines clearly what is Scripture and what is not. What is the inspired Word of God and what is not. The books listed here are books that many of us have probably never heard of and that even fewer of us have probably read through. And yet, Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, sees fit to devote an entire article of our confession of faith to the distinction between these books and the holy scriptures, these books called Apocrypha. The word Apocrypha comes from the Greek. It means hidden things in the early church it was used to refer to books which were hidden in the sense of being banned from public use in worship and this is probably how we most often hear this term used we hear stories in the news about the apocryphal gospel of thomas and the apocryphal gospel of judas and the apocryphal revelation of peter about false books containing dangerous and false teachings about jesus christ books which are misleading false Dangerous and even blasphemous. But that's not what this article is talking about. There is no New Testament Apocrypha listed in this article. The false gospels and the pseudepigraphal writings of early Christianity are not this article's concern. What this article is referring to is the Old Testament Apocrypha, more commonly called the Deuterocanon, which means the second canon. These 12 books, or parts of books, which were, up until the time of the Reformation, included as part of the Old Testament, and, in fact, are still included in many Bibles to this day. Um, I thought that our great big sanctuary Bible had the Apocrypha in it, but then when I went to look at it, it didn't. Um, We have older sanctuary Bibles that do have the Apocrypha in them, everything from Esdras all the way on down to the books of the Maccabees. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would any Bible print books which are not the inspired Word of God on their pages? And that brings us down an awesome and exciting 3,000-year history of the Bible as we have it today, which I think is a journey that's worth taking and one that people are interested in nowadays because there's a lot of questions about the Bible in the media and in books and TV shows around us. The simple answer of why a Bible would include books that weren't inspired scripture is because many people thought they were inspired scripture. The biggest difference between the Apocrypha and the scriptures that we have is that the Apocrypha is included in the Greek version of the Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. All of these books listed here in this article are included in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which I have here. This is it. It's very small print, but it's, it has an English translation next to it, which is very convenient for us. Um, the Greek version of the Old Testament was developed about 300 years before the birth of Christ, under the reign of King Ptolemy in Egypt, a Greek king in Egypt. And this is something that many people don't learn in school. Um, which is that, and, and it comes to a surprise, it comes as a surprise to many people, and that is that the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament that we have is actually about three, 400 years older than the Hebrew version of the Old Testament that we have. Because the Old Testament canon isn't really established until somewhere around the time of Christ, about 300 years later. The Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, is a translation of an older tradition of the Hebrew Bible. Um, But it's it's a tradition that hasn't yet reached the level of canon, so it's not canonized, it's not set. And the reason that the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek 300 years before the time of Christ was because already in the time of Jesus, Hebrew was a dying language. Most Jews in Jesus' time spoke Aramaic, the language of the Persian Empire, and those who didn't speak Aramaic spoke Greek, the language of the Greek Empire, and later of the Roman Empire. By the time that Jesus is growing up, it's very likely that the only people who can speak Hebrew in the entire region of Palestine are the priests. And even they probably can only read it, not speak it. So in Alexandria in Egypt, 300 years before the birth of Christ, the Bible is translated from Hebrew into Greek. And this version of the Bible, called the Septuagint, contains these books, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, the books of the Kings, which we know as First and 2 Samuel and First and Second Kings, the books of the Chronicles, The four books of Esdras, that is Ezra, Nehemiah, and the apocryphal books referred to in this article, Tobit, Judith, Esther, Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Song, the Book of Wisdom, also called the Wisdom of Solomon, the Book of Jesus Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, with Baruch. Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Book of the Twelve, which was a collection of prophecies that we in our Bible divide up into Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, or Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and the first two books of the Maccabees. This Greek version of the Bible very quickly becomes popular throughout the ancient world because they can, because people can read it it's written in a language that they speak and understand it's easy for people to explain to people who are not jewish and it was translated by hebrew scribes in egypt in fact the septuagint was so trusted by people in the ancient world that it that it developed this epic origin story which is where it gets its name from because septuagint is latin for a group of 70 And the story goes that King Ptolemy of Egypt gathered 72 Jewish scribes, uh, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and put them into 72 different rooms, and went into each room individually and told each scribe, write for me the Torah of Moses, your teacher. And when he gathered up each of the 72 individual translations of the Hebrew Bible, translated into Greek, Each translation was exactly the same. And so King Ptolemy knew that the one true God had inspired and ordained this translation of the Bible. So that's a bit of history. That's the first part of the answer to this question of why these books might be included in a translation of the Old Testament, because they are included in the oldest versions of the Old Testament that we have. But when the Septuagint is translated, the Hebrew Bible is not yet what we would call a closed canon. That version of the Old Testament follows a bit of a different trajectory. The Jewish Bible as it exists today, which I also have, is actually a collection, is actually three separate collections of books And these were canonized at different times throughout uh, the history of Judaism. Some of you may have heard the term Tanakh to refer to the Hebrew Bible. And the term Tanakh is an acronym for these three different collections of books. T is for Torah, which means law or teaching. N is for Nevi'im, which means prophets. And K is for Ketuvim, which means writings. And the Torah, the law, contains the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Neviim, the prophets, contains the former prophets, that is the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and the latter prophets, which includes the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the 12. The Ketuvim, or the later, or the, the Ketuvim, or the writings, contains Psalms, Proverbs, Job, the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, and Ezra-Nehemiah, which was one book in the Hebrew canon, and Chronicles. These 24 books were established as a closed canon in this order, probably shortly before the time of Jesus, although some scholars argue for a later date. And a significant part of this process of establishing a closed Hebrew canon was as a reaction against, some, uh, against what some Palestinian Jewish leaders saw as liberalizing trends among Greek-speaking Jews. For some Jews living in Palestine... In the time of the Roman Empire, accommodation to the ways of the world was, was in- including an accommodation to Greek language and the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures was seen as a dangerous compromise. And so they undertook the task of establishing their own canon based on scriptural, a scriptural tradition that was different from the tradition followed by the Septuagint. Throughout the history of Christianity, Christian writers and thinkers were not oblivious to this history. From the beginning of the Christian tradition, there have been kind of two streams of thought about the Apocrypha. Some Christians, like St. Augustine, said that the Apocryphal books ought to be considered equal to the books of Scripture because they exist in the most ancient versions of the Old Testament. Other Christians, like St. Jerome, argued that the Apocryphal books ought to be considered secondary to the canonical books because they were not revered by the Jews in their canon. But no one in the early church argued that these books were dangerous or not valuable. Christian councils held up these books as part of the the canon of Scripture. Christian churches read from these books in worship. Christian leaders practiced and taught from them. And faithful Christians read them as part of their devotional life. So why do they become such an issue at the time of the Reformation? If they had been part of the Christian Bible from the beginning, why start to question what is in and what is out? The disagreement was mostly a theological one, though also a historical one, because they had never been included in the Hebrew Bible. The Protestant reformers argued against doctrines that they saw were being used to exploit the poor including praying to saints and purgatory. And the strongest support for these doctrines came from the deuterocanonical books. It would be unfair to our Catholic brothers and sisters to say that their whole argument for these doctrines came from these books. But lessening the theological impact of these books would be a big win for the Reformers and would go a long way toward making those doctrines more questionable. But the problem was, the stories and lessons contained in these books were incredibly popular. They they, they were some of the best-known Bible stories in the whole world. They were used to teach children and new Christians about what it meant to live a holy and devout life that's pleasing to God. It would be kind of like if someone suggested that we take the story of David and Goliath out of the Bible because it advocates violence. There would be riots. And there were. There was no way that the reformers were going to get the Deuterocanon out of the Bible. And most of them, honestly, weren't really interested in doing that. They didn't want these books out of the Bible. They just wanted people to stop using them in ways that they weren't intended to be used to justify the way that the Roman church was taking advantage of the poor by telling them that if they donated money to the church, then grandma wouldn't have to suffer in purgatory as long. And you love your grandma, don't you? You wouldn't want her to suffer anymore. The reformers wanted this kind of injustice to stop, and it was actually Martin Luther who came up with the compromise that we see echoed here in the Belgic Confession. When Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, He took the deuterocanonical books out of their traditional place in the Old Testament and put them in a separate collection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is still how most Bibles are printed today, with the Apocrypha in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Martin Luther included a preface explaining that while these books were edifying for Christians to read and profitable for teaching proper, uh, proper virtue and piety, they are not inspired scripture and ought not be used to justify any point of doctrine. As Guido de Bray writes in the Belgic Confession, the church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, But they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm from their testimony any point of faith. That is, they can't be used to justify doctrine or the Christian religion. Much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. In this way, they followed an ancient Christian tradition that dates back to the earliest times of the church. And in reaction against this, the Roman Catholic Church declared at the Council of Trent that all of the deuterocanonical books were fully scripture, were fully canonical and holy scripture inspired by God. And so the Roman Catholics followed a different ancient Christian tradition that dates back to the earliest days of the church. So that was settled. Catholics believed that the deuterocanon was inspired Protestants believed that it was not, and so the church, which had held these two differing perspectives together for 1,500 years, was torn. But even then, the Protestant relationship to the newly separated Apocrypha was complicated. Most Protestant churches continued to print the Apocrypha in their Bibles, continued to read it in worship, continued to teach its stories in Christian schools and seminaries well into the 19th century. And even to this day, Lutherans and Anglicans continue to include the Apocrypha in their lectionary readings in worship. John Calvin followed Martin Luther in holding the Apocrypha as second to Scripture. And most Reformed churches around the world still use the Apocrypha in their worship. The only group of Protestants who seemed to have a problem with the Apocrypha even being an appendix in the Bible was the Puritans in England, who saw the Apocrypha as a Catholic corruption of the Scriptures. And so in 1827, a group of Puritans from—this is hilarious, sorry. In 1827, a group of Puritans from Scotland... Petitioned the British and Foreign Bible Society, which was the biggest financial backer of English Bible publishers, to discontinue printing the Apocrypha. And the reason they cited, believe it or not, was that their missionaries were complaining that their Bibles were too heavy, and this would be an easy way to make them lighter. But everybody knows the real reason. And that is the story of how the Apocrypha came to be removed. From our Bibles. But what does this mean for us? Why does any of this matter? It's an interesting history lesson, maybe, but why spend a Sunday evening sermon on this topic? Well, the easy answer to that is that it's in the Belgic Confession, and we're going through the Belgic Confession, so I have to spend a Sunday evening sermon talking about it. But the truth of the matter is that if we never preached on the difference between canon and Apocrypha, none of us here would probably suffer. We don't have the Apocrypha in most of our Bibles. And maybe that's for the best. But the reason I wanted to spend some time on this this evening is because the history of the Apocrypha teaches us that the formation of the scriptures is a very human process. And for some people, this is a frightening thing. For some people, the idea that so much politicking and debating and disagreement went into the formation of and and the establishment of the Bible that we have now takes away somehow from its authority and its simplicity. But for us, for Reformed Christians who, who trust and believe that God, by his Holy Spirit, inspires and preserves his word, This complicated history is not a threat to our faith. We believe that God uses human persons to communicate his divine revelation. The Holy Spirit inspired ordinary men and women to speak the very words of God. The same Spirit inspired others to write those words down. The same Spirit inspired others to copy and distribute those writings. The same Spirit inspired still others to translate those writings into different languages. And the very same Spirit inspires us all when we read these words and convicts us that they are the very words of God. The Old Testament that sits before you in the pew is a translation of a Hebrew text arranged in the order of a Greek text with the parts of the Greek text that aren't in the Hebrew text removed. It was translated into English by a group of American scholars in 1970, approved for use in worship in the Christian Reformed Church in 1980, revised in 1987. To this day, scholars are continuing work to get better translation, to get better versions of more ancient texts, to translate them better into more understandable language for a changing world. Sometimes people disagree about which ancient manuscripts are the most authoritative. Sometimes people disagree about how to best translate these words into modern English. Sometimes people scheme about how to get their opinion heard. And sometimes people fight about which version is the best. But we trust and believe that God works through all of these very human realities to offer us the gift of the Word of God. This isn't really a sermon about the Apocrypha. You can read the Apocrypha yourselves if you want. The stories are inspiring and informative. And you would probably be blessed by reading them. But this sermon is not about the Apocrypha. The sermon is about the Word of God. The Word of God which endures in spite of opposition, politicking, oppression, and human schemes. We worship a God who is stronger than our disagreements. And we trust that when we read His Word, His Spirit will lead us into all truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, sometimes when we read these historical documents, we become confused. We read about Esdras and Tobit and Judith and Jesus Sirach and Baruch and the children in the furnace and Susanna and Manasseh and Maccabees. And for many of us, these names are unfamiliar. For many of us, the history of these things is confusing. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you and we praise you that in spite of our human fallenness, you still use people to reveal yourself to us. We thank you and we praise you that you have offered us this gift of your word. And we pray that every day of our lives, we may be formed and shaped by it, led by your Holy Spirit. Amen.